Welcome to Christian Family Center. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy today's message as we preach on living, loving, walking, and influencing for Jesus. Be blessed. When we choose to worship with everything that's inside of us, when we choose to worship the King without worrying what the person's going to think next to us, when we worship the King, whether you sing in tune or out of tune, when we worship the King, we join an angelic host in bringing glory to the name of the King of all kings. I don't know about you, but just get that picture. We're not a bunch of people sitting in church with a red shirt, with a lookalike head style, and a white striped shirt, just praising, singing a song to make me feel good. We're in church because we agree in the value of corporately coming to worship the King. There is value with worshiping Him at home. There is value with worshiping Him in private. There is value with worshiping Him in a small group. But oh boy, there is also value of worshiping Him in a corporate setting like this. And when we worship Him, we join an angelic host. Even when you're singing alone in the shower, get this, and you're praising the King of Kings, it's like you're standing in His throne room. Hello. Because He doesn't care. He loves you, and He will take whatever praise you want to give Him. Because He inhabits the praises of His people. Come on. God wants to inhabit you. People say, I want more of God. Praise Him more. I want more of God in my situation. Praise Him more. I want more of God in the church. Praise Him more. You see, God's into praise. Literally, He inhabits your praise. And when, when myself or someone here feels the Holy Spirit say, they're touching me, they're bringing, they're coming close, we're nearly there. We haven't arrived there yet. Because we pull back the brakes because we're ashamed or because we're scared or because we're fearful or because it's a place we've never been before. But God is saying, come on, let it go. Let it go. You know, when I was on the mines in South Africa, I used to hate going underground when the onsetter, that's the guy who used to ring the bells, to communicate with the engine driver who was on, on the land. You've always seen those big headgears and the cable goes from a room over a big wheel and underground. Now, what the driver in the room would do, uh, if him and the onsetter, the guy ringing the bells, had had a, a little spat and they had got each other into trouble... Then the onsetter would ring, okay, ring, you know, it's safe to go, uh, we're cool, we're going down to 5,200 feet below the surface. And the next moment, we'd sit in the cage, and you'd hear, and you could hear, thump, 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 and you know the cable is unwinding off the wheel and it's landing on the top. But the driver holds the brakes of the cage, literally, and the next moment, free fall! And it's not nice because breakfast becomes your heartbeat and your heartbeat becomes your throat. Your larynx becomes your tongue and everything from last night is literally over your face and the people in the cage above you because you're free falling down really, really fast. And I don't like that feeling. But when we get together... And you can just taste something. You can just perceive that God wants to just break through and inhabit our praises in a special way. That super, super special anointing that he goes, I love you all the time. But you know, God doesn't have favorites, but you can attract, attract his favor. God has no favorites. He loves Keldon as much as he loves me, as my German friend over here. He loves us the same way. You know, uh, Vanuatu descent, Dutch descent, German descent. He loves us the same way. Danish descent, French descent, Zimbabwean. He loves us the same. But you can attract his favor when you press his buttons. Praise presses God's buttons. And he kind of goes, it's free-falling time. Now, I hate free-falling, but in worship, I'll free-fall any time. And you know what? When Kylie leads or when I say something or when the other pass, we're not beating you into worship. We're just going, we're discerning God's doing something. Jump in with me. You see, if there was a pool here, like the pool, uh, what's it, of Shay, what's it, 
of, of Bethesda, and, and you were sick on the side, and you saw an angel came and stir the water, cripple or not, you'd find a way in. Hello? Cripple or not, you'd find a way in. You'd, you'd, you'd pay people to kick you in the water because you knew if you hit it, you're the first one, you're healed. And God's here this evening and he's stirring it, the water, and he says, who wants to jump in? And we go, I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to lift my hands. Who does he think he is? I'm just a South African, naturalized Australian of Dutch descent. But I'm a believer who knows the presence of God. And when I see he wants to do something, I want to hop in. Next time, hop in with me. Hop in with us. Is that cool? Don't hold back. Please, don't hold back. You know, God loves his people. God loves humanity. And uh, God's love story for humanity, God's love story for you and me, is intertwined throughout the whole Bible. From when God said, let there be light. From when God said, breathed into dust to make a man. From when God gave a promise when man fell and said, hey, I'm going to send someone to restore. From when Jesus said, hey, it is done. From when Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me from when John got the revelation that Jesus was coming back on that big white horse and he was coming to take his bride to be where his father is. The whole word of God is intertwined with a love story. A story of God wanting to reach out to humanity and make them his and love them his way. And God had the Israelite nation, a chosen people. And this chosen people came from a person, through a family, became a nation. And after becoming a nation, they went to cross the Red Sea into the Promised Land. Twelve tribes into the Promised Land. And King David, King David brought them all together and unified them. And along came his son Solomon. And as wise as he was, he couldn't follow his own advice. And he did things which compromised the unity. And the twelve nations split and fractured into two groups. You had ten travel called the northern, or called Israel in the north. Ten tribes. And in the south, you had two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin called Judah. And you had the northern ten tribes and you had the southern two tribes. You had Israel and you had Judah. And Israel existed with king after king after king after king. And as Israel existed, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God caused the Assyrians to rise and become powerful and overpower them. And they were scattered. And in the south, the tribe of Judah was behaving badly. And the same thing happened. That God spoke out against his chosen people and said, I need to teach you. And he caused the Babylonians to rise up and to attack and to take them into captivity. It had been prophesied that the temple would be totally destroyed, that not a stone would remain unturned. And they were taken to Babylon. A few weeks ago, you all heard me sing, if you were here, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down. We're going to sing it again. But at the rivers in Babylon, the southern tribe, the tribe of Judah, lamented over their homeland. And it took God 70 years of listening to their cry, 70 years of listening to their lament. When a man by the name of King Cyrus from Persia By now the Persians had defeated the Babylonians who had previously defeated the Assyrians. So Persia was in control of all of that land. 
And a guy by the name of King Cyrus issues a decree that the Jews in captivity in Babylon may return home to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and rebuild their city and worship their God. 538 B.C. And the Israelite nation in Babylon now knows it's free to travel. It's free. If you've ever been in a country where you cannot get a passport to travel, you will understand what it means to be free to travel. If you've ever been convicted of a crime where your passport has been removed, you will know what it means to be free to travel. And they were free to return, but not everybody came home. They came home in drips and drabs. Actually, two drips and one drab. They came home in three groups. The first group was led by a guy called Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, whichever way you want to say it. And Zerubbabel brought the first group, 43,000 people. There were millions, but he brought 43,000 who said, we want to go home now. We want to go rebuild. We want to go and worship the King of Kings. And so Zerubbabel brings 43,000 people back. Now there's two things of interest right here. Number one, Zerubbabel is of the kingly line. His granddaddy, say granddaddy. His granddaddy was the second last king of, the, of Judah. He was the second last king of the southern tribe. So Zerubbabel was of kingly descent. He was a king. And his function in the Persian, under Persian rule was to function as governor over the Israelites. But to an Israelite, he was a king because he was in the line of the kings. At the same time, there was Joshua, who was the priest and became the high priest. Not Joshua as in Moses, but another Joshua. And he was the high priest. And there were two prophets in the time of Zerubbabel. And they were Haggai and Zechariah. And you find these bunch of Israelites, 46,000 of them, 43,000 of them, that had returned to Jerusalem, the first drip that had come in. And they had a king, they had a priest, and they had two prophets. And God used the king, the priest, and the prophets to start to do something. And there's a sequence of events that happens, and I'm not going to spend much time, I'm just going to jump through them. But we've got to get these sequence of events in our head so that when I share what I'm about to share, it makes sense. 538, king of Persia, Darius, issues a decree, Jews can come home. 538 BC, Zerubbabel pioneers the first 43,000, together with a priest Joshua and two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and they come back to Jerusalem. When they get there, what do they discover? Their temple. The temple of Solomon had been totally destroyed, broken to the ground, and absolute ruin, and possibly animals running through it and doing doo-doos all over the place. To the average Jew, that was the absolute insult. Not just anyone could enter the temple, and here it was, broken, every stone overturned. Probably Persian kids running through it, playing hide-and-seek, or Nerf guns in our terms. Spotlight at night desecrating it. To the average Jew, they would have ripped their cloth, thrown ash over their heads as they ripped their clothes and lay down and wept. But Zerubbabel realizes that they've come home to rebuild worship. They've come home to rebuild the temple of God. And the first thing he does is builds an altar and they start to worship the King of Kings. They start to worship God. It doesn't matter what it looks like. We know our God. Let's build an altar and worship the king. That's 538 BC. It was a busy year that year. You think our calendar is full sometimes. Theirs was even busier. 
And in 534 BC, they start to build, uh, that, uh, sorry, in 538 BC, they start to rebuild the temple. They pour the foundation, whatever that looked like to them, setting brick upon brick. I don't know what they did to rebuild that temple, but they poured the foundation. The foundation was laid. A king issued a decree. They decided to come home. They came home. The first party came home. They got home. They built an altar. They worshiped God, and they put in the foundation. 534 BC, just four years later, they stopped building the temple. There had been opposition from around them. And they stopped. It just got too hard to build. This is where Haggai and Zechariah start prophesying. King Cyrus is no longer king of Persia anymore. Another Persian king follows him whose name is too hard to say. And then we have King Darius following him. And the reason I share this is as you read the story of Zechariah, you might see the name Cyrus and then Darius and go, is it the same person? No, they were two different Persian kings and there was a third one in between. So you had a Persian rule. And King Darius understands and finds out what King Cyrus had done. And he says, I too will lend my support to the Israelites. I too will provide them with what they need and give them the ability to rebuild their temple so that they may worship their God. So in 520 BC, 14 years later, they start rebuilding. For 14 years, nothing happened. But 14 years later, they start rebuilding the temple. You see, Haggai prophesies about that temple. He actually says in Haggai chapter 1 verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And the people were saying, we're not ready yet. We're not ready yet. But God had a plan. And he prophesies through Haggai, and it ends up in chapter 2 of Haggai, verse 9, where where God says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You see, you've got to understand, the building that Solomon built was huge. We're going to look at it in a moment. And awesome. And by architectural standards, a masterpiece above masterpieces. Even the way it was engineered and built was a marvel. They were just going to build an ordinary temple. And God was saying, hey, I don't care about the building. He says, but my presence. They thought they had my presence in that smart building. Let let me show you how I'm going to fill it in the latter days. And God gives them a promise that says, give me a place to inhabit and watch me fill it with all of me, that the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. That's what God's promise was for that Israelite nation. That's his promise for you and me today, that in the latter outpouring of his spirit, it would be greater than in the beginning. It's just me that's excited. And so they start rebuilding. And Zechariah prophesies, chapters 1 through to chapter 6, and he gives us eight pictures of God. He says, hey, God is a God of mercy who's into rebuilding. God is a God who will scatter his people's oppressors. God is a God that wants to inhabit us. God gives leadership and positional authority. God's spirit will complete what he started. God's judgment will come. God will take away the sin of his people and nations will be judged. I don't know about you, but it sounds like a modern day story to me. It sounds like what we're a part of right now. God says, hey, I want you to get a picture of me, Israel. 
as you build my house and I'm going to fill it and the spirit with which I fill it will be greater than the spirit that filled that marvelous architecture. You need to know who I am as God. I'm a God of mercy who's into rebuilding, dealing with your oppressors, living within you, giving you authority. My spirit will complete what it started. There is a judgment, but I will take away your sin and the nations will be judged. I don't know about you, but I'm excited. It tells me he's going to deal with it. I don't have to worry about the oppressors. It's his job. All I've got to worry about is him inhabiting me, his Holy Spirit finishing what he started in me, him taking away my sin, me being free from that eternal judgment, but having to give an account of what I've done with what he gave me, and he will just judge everybody, sort them all out, and nations will pay. Okay, it's just me that's excited. (laughs) Oh, you're sitting there absolutely shocked going, oh, wow. And this is what's going on. This is what's happening when we come to Zechariah chapter 7. This is the context to the average Jew that day. And the prophetic word comes from God to the Israelite nations with the prophet Zechariah. And as it was true for the Israelite nation then, it is true for us today too. Oh yes, it spoke about a specific event in time. I understand Old Testament prophecy. It was given for a specific people, for a specific time, for a specific reason. But I've got to look at the Word of God and say, God, if you chose it to be there, it must mean something for me today. God, what did you say to that nation? What predicament were they in? And what did you do next? You know, when you see someone that's pretty awesome, a golfer that's pretty awesome, what's the first question you ask them? How did you get here? We see the result, and we might want to be like that pro golfer. And you can't just go and stand next to him and say, which is what a lot of people do. And by the way, it's the same for us as believers. Uh, could I, what glove are you using? What clubs are you using? Um, 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 what shoes do you wear? Who's your pro golfer? Which golf courses? It's all nothing. I can, I've got a decent golf club. A golf, golf glove. I bought a real golf glove that is actually a, a pretty di- rigid ditch one. And I picked my club up and I still suck at it. I'm still a swacker as opposed to a swinger. I can't swing the golf club. I whack it. And I just pray the balls just get a lift off the ground enough. There's enough energy to take it to the flag if I can just hit it right. It's not the glove. It's the technique. It's learning the skill. It's practicing the shot. It's having someone watch you hit, keeping how to keep your eye on the ball, how to follow through, how to keep this arm straight and this arm bent and follow it. It's a skill. And as we look at this prophetic word to the Israelite nation, it begs of us that we would look at what they, where they were, what they had to do, and where they end up so that we might learn something along the way. So while it's a prophetic word for them, I know there's lessons for us to learn today. Zechariah 7 and 8. And if you've got the newsletter from this morning or tonight, I've actually got the scriptures in there. And I've chosen to use the Message Bible uh, for this occasion because it makes it really simple in using the word use, the choice of words in explaining it. And if you've got the notes in front of you, that's four R's so that you're aware. And there's some information, a Bible verse under each one. You need to understand the Message Bible is a paraphrase. It just puts the, the Bible in common language that we might understand it a little better. And it says in the first one that they were feasting. And it says, and when you held feasts, was that for me? Hardly. You're interested in religion while I'm interested in people. 
You see, the first thing God says to the Israelite nation, as you read Zechariah 7 and Zechariah 8, God says to the nation, you've stopped building. You're not doing anything. You're not doing what you're meant to do. Come on. And the first thing he says to them is, hey, I've got to rebuke you. And immediately we think, oh, they were in trouble. Yes, they were. But think about it. A parent who loves their child brings discipline and correction to their child. A parent who loves their child will see a behavior pattern and say, that's dangerous. If I leave it in the two-year-old as a tantrum, it will become demanding in an eight-year-old and it will become absolutely havoc in a teenager. And as an adult, it will end them up in jail. I don't want my child in jail, so I'll deal with the temper tantrum at two. And any parent that's responsible will behave that way. Well, our God, he's the perfect father. I don't matter what your father was like, what my father was like. God the father is the perfect father. And out of his love for his Israelite nation, out of his love for us, he says, let me correct you. Let me discipline you. Let me rebuke you. But we're kind of in the church world nowadays, we've got a really nasty connotation to the word rebuke. (gasps) Scary word. All God's doing is saying, hey, I want to bring you back into line. You're going to hurt yourself. And I don't want you to hurt yourself. I love you too much. I want you to get to the goal. And he says to them, I need to rebuke you because you're more interested in religion tradition than people. He says, hey, you got it all wrong. You're more interested in following rules and rhythms and rhymes than you are in people. And he brings a strong correction. You know what I've been saying over several weeks now? I am tired of living in the valley of dry bones. I am tired of living in a community where there is a party culture in Ely Beach, where there is apathy in Bowen, where there is a religious thing out there in Collinsville that says we're a communist and we're in control and you won't come in here. We're going to do our own thing. There are genuine geographical territorial spirits that try and dominate and control. And as the church, we're cool to sit on our bums here and do nothing about it. But God said they've been defeated. All you got to do is not worry about religion. Start to worry about people. Jesus was familiar with it. In his time, it was Sunday, the Sabbath, and he healed somebody. (gasps) All hell broke loose. How dare you heal on the Sabbath, the Bible says. They were trying to throw God's word straight back at him to keep the Sabbath holy. And he said, you haven't got a clue what that means. You bunch of whitewashed tombs, you stink. Jesus led a tax collector to the Lord and went and hung out with him and his friends and ate with him. (gasps) The people wanted to crucify him a whole bunch of years ahead of time because he was eating with sinners. Tradition said you can't eat. Jews don't hang out with tax collectors. They're Jews who've sold out on Jews to collect money for the Romans. Jesus was walking as a teacher. He was recognized as a teacher by his own people. Through the crowd one day, and the lady with the issue of blood touched his garment. Now you've got to know, she shouldn't have been there in the first place. You have an issue of blood as a woman, you're rejected. You live outside the camp because you're unceremonially unclean. You're ceremonially unclean. Anything and anyone you touch becomes dirty and tainted. Oh, look at me funny. It's what the law was that day. Aren't we glad we're free from the law? It was like that those days. 
She shouldn't have been there. A woman rejected and abandoned by her community because of her condition, which she had had for so long. An outcast pushes her way through and touches his garment. Oh, we all know the story. She got healed. But do you realize that unclean touched clean, which made clean unclean? That Jesus, before he could do anything, should have gone and washed himself and cleansed himself. And only the next morning could he have done his next miracle. But he goes and just does his next miracle anyway. Because what God has said is clean is clean. It doesn't matter what the world says. <clears throat> From the religious leaders. They even came to Jesus and they said to him, Why? Um, even John's disciples fast more than yours. Your lot lie around eating all day. Yeah, bring it on. They lie around eating all day. And Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? You just don't get it, you hypocrites. You just don't get it. We're in good company when we abandon religiosity and tradition and make our focus about people because that's what Jesus did. Hello? That's what Jesus did. It wasn't about tradition and religion. It was about people. You see, in your notes, I've written the word rebuke. And as I was preparing, after I'd written that down there, God's, I, the Holy Spirit just quickened the response. You see, when God rebukes, what is our response? Starts with an R. Repent. When God rebukes, we've got to repent. When God says, hey, you're out of line. You've made it about rules, models, and methods. When it's been about people all along. Our response as people is to repent. The first question you've got to ask yourself tonight is, have I... Am I in need of that rebuke? Is it for me, personally? Is it for us, corporately? And if you go, yes, well then guess what your response is? Repentance. God, I'm sorry. Here's the deal. We live in an I say sorry society where all we do is, I'm sorry, and we walk away from it. And then you look at the person and they go, what are you looking at? I said sorry. What more do you want? I said sorry. What more do you want? Well, sorry should carry within it repentance, which means a turning the other way. I can say sorry till the cows come home. I can insult and annoy this lovely young lady till the cows come home. And every time she says, you're insulting me, I'm sorry. <laughs> you short, skinny little thing. I'm sorry, you short, skinny little thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Until I change my attitude, until I change my behavior, it's not repentance. It's a sorry bunch of people. You got it. <laughs> It's a sorry bunch of people. God's called us to repentance at his rebuke. I need to move really quickly. That's number one. Number two, he goes, well, the message hasn't changed. God of the angel armies, reading further in chapter 7, said then and says now, treat one another justly. Love your neighbors. Be compassionate with each other. Don't take advantage of the widows, the orphans, the visitors, and the poor. Don't, poor, don't plot and scheme against one another. That's evil. Hello, we're reading out of the Old Testament. We're reading out of a prophet here. And we listen to these words and we kind of go, sounds like Jesus speaking. Well, it's right. Jesus got it from where? God? Who was Zechariah speaking on behalf of? God. Zechariah got it from the same person Jesus did. God the Father. God's heart had always been to remind people of their responsibility to humanity. God's heart has always been a God of love and a God of compassion. Micah 6, 8 says, What does the Lord require of us but that we would walk justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? 
God's called us in Matthew 5, chapter 16. It says, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and give your Father in heaven all the praise. That's the God we serve. He changeth not. He's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it says here that he told them before that they were ought be compassionate. He was telling them again, and Jesus comes along and he tells them again, and the apostle Paul comes along and tells them again, and I'm standing here today telling all of us, including me, again. God reminds us that it's about people, not religion. God reminds us it's not about a program, but about loving people. That's what it's about. God says, hey, you exist, that's you and me, exist to bring Him glory and benefit other people. When last did you bring God glory and when last did you benefit another person? When last? So God brings a reminder. He rebukes this nation to which they have to repent. He then reminds them to which they need to. Another R. Anyone? Take a shot at it. Except for those who were in Ellie Beach this morning and heard it. Respond. You see, if, if repentance follows a rebuke, then a response has got to follow a reminder. God reminds them why they're there. And they have to respond. He goes on in chapter 8. He says, A message from the God of the angel armies, means the God of hosts. Old men and old women will come back to Jerusalem, sit on benches on the streets and spin some tales, move around safely with their canes as they travel along. A good city to grow old in, God says. And boys and girls will fill the public parks, laughing and playing a good city to grow up in. I don't know about you, but that kind of looks like a pretty awesome place. God says to them, if you can repent from my rebuke, if you will respond to my remind, then I will restore. I will restore your cities for you. That it would become a safe place again for old people. That it will become a safe place again for children. He's giving us a picture that John Lennon wrote about from the Beatles. He sang a song called Imagine. Imagine all the people living. Perfect harmony. I don't know how the tune goes. Living in perfect harmony. John Lennon was on a drug-endosed psychosis when he wrote it. From a broken heart, he had a cry. From a broken heart, he must have realized there is a place and a time where everything can work in perfect unity. He cried out to the wrong thing, drugs, alcohol, sex, and rock and roll. Here God's using the prophet Zechariah to say the same thing. Saying, imagine a place, but he's saying it's not an imagine. It's when you do what I say, I will restore. I will restore. I will cause dry bones to have life again. I will cause the party culture to cease existing. I will cause that independent spirit. I will kill apathy. I will rebuild, restore the place. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans that you would prosper. That's God's heart for you and me. That's God's heart for the church. That's God's heart for our community. And he says, hey, I'm going to rebuke you, repent. I'm going to remind you, respond. I'm going to restore things. And what's our part? Starts with R. Rebuild. I slipped it in accidentally. We've got to rebuild. We've got to rebuild the broken things. Remember, he was talking to them about rebuilding the temple. 
And in a few prophets' time, he's going to talk to them about rebuilding the walls. But right here, right now, he was saying, I'm going to restore. So guess what? Start building. Start building. Start building. The last one, he says, people and their leaders will come from all over to see what's going on. The leaders will confer with one another. Shouldn't we try to get in on this? Get in on God's blessing? Pray to God of the angel armies? What's keeping us? Let's go. Lots of people, powerful nations, coming to Jerusalem, looking for what they can get from the God of the angel armies, looking to get a blessing from God. And he says to them, hey, if you can handle the rebuke, if you can get the reminder... If you can get your head around the restoration, then I will give you a result. And he says to them, hey, when you get these three things right, I will give you influence. People will come from all around to see what's happening here. This morning as I was preaching, cells at the back there, and I used him this morning, Pastor Dolph sitting up the front here, and Kel's over here. But when I got here, and I shared with the board, and I shared with them the vision that God had put on my heart for this house, and what God was going to do here, and the mandate, uh, Selwyn actually remembers it, and remembers the conversation he had in his head with himself, but I'm praying that Pastor Dolph and, and, and Pastor Kel can reflect on it. I said, hey, God has shown me a picture of what Bowen Christian Family Center can look like if we cross the T's and dot the I's. If we do what God's called us to do, if we remain faithful to God's mandate, if we make it about people, then God will bless us to the point, and the two of you can confer it, he already this morning heard it, that I said people would come here to learn from us. So Selwyn remembers it this morning. In a board meeting, I said, God had put that in my heart four years ago, that people would come here to Bowen, 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 to learn, to learn from us. Not because we were this U-Butte thing, but because we understood what it was to repent when he rebuked us, to respond when he reminded us to rebuild when he promised restoration. And we didn't do it for the result, but we did it in faith and obedience because we heard him. You see, when God says there's a result, the other last R word for us is there's a reward. God says, I'm going to give you a result. For us, it's a reward. And we don't do it for the reward. We do it for the rewarder. Because it's about the rewarder more than the reward. It's not about the influence, but about the God of influence who's choosing to work in us and through us. If you read, and I don't have time, 1 Kings 10, verses 1 to 10, you can write it down. 1 Kings 10, verses 1 to 10. The queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon, and she checks out this awesome uh, temple that he's built, and she makes a couple of really wild statements, and she says, wow, it is huge. It is better than what I was told. Actually, I wasn't even told half of it. I actually see how your people operate. I see the joy they have in them. And she says to him, I want to bless you. And this morning while I was preaching, Dean worked out for me that it was 40 tons of gold. And what did we say it worked out to be? $228 million worth of gold she gave Solomon at her first visit in today's term. $228 million worth of gold she gave him, plus spices, and the Bible said, like has never been seen before. She blessed him obscenely and went away telling everyone about it, and people came and blessed Solomon and the house of God. Why? What's for us to learn? 
What was there to learn for this Israelite nation? That when God brings a correction, a rebuke, we repent. When God brings a reminder, we respond. When God says, I'm going to restore, we rebuild. When God says there's a result, we say, I'll take the reward. But it's not about the reward. It's about the rewarder. Talia? Rebuke is repent. Remind is respond. Restore is rebuild. Result is reward. There's a fifth R that goes on the bottom of the page. And that R is the word that I felt that God has put in my heart. And it's the word regroup. Regroup. You see, God is into His church. Being a community of believers with lifestyles that declare the truth that Jesus is the Christ. God is into you and me and our church. Walking, influencing, living, and loving. God's desire for the Whit Sundays and the mandate on this church is that through this church, God would put footprints all across the Whit Sundays. If you've ever painted a floor, and you've got a young kid who goes running across the floor onto the next floor. You just see footprints. And it's the coolest thing to see the first set of footprints. But when you see them everywhere, you realize, we're changing that floor too. See, God wants you and I to run all over the Whit Sundays, leaving footprints in his name. Everything we do, it's not about tradition. It's about people. It's about the compassion and the heart of God. It's about rebuilding so that it can be a safe community again. It's about influence and people partnering with us as we make footprints all over the Whit Sundays. Matthew 15, 16 says, 5, 16, sorry, says, let your light, one of the translation uses these words, so shine. You see, I believe as a church, this church, Bowen Christian Family Center, it has been called, its mandate is to be a lighthouse church. And over years, Pastor may come and pastor may go, but the mandate stays the same. And God says, I've called you and positioned you, Bowen Christian Family Center, to be a lighthouse church. To be a church that would so let its light shine that people would see the good works and give God all the glory. So tonight, the message is a prophetic message for each and every one of us personally who have made it about tradition and religion. And God's saying, I want to bring you in line. Repent, respond, rebuild, so that I might reward you. But at the same time, I believe And I have met with some of the key leaders of the church that this is a significant word for our house. It's a significant word for our church. God wants repentance, response, rebuilding so that he may reward. Selwyn, can I use what you said this morning, please? 
When I spoke with Sal this morning after service in Ely Beach, he said to me, he remembers, and he actually remembers in his mind when I said it. He thought, what's so special about Bowen? What's so special about the things we're going to do that people would want to come here? Well, they're going to come and watch a church repent, respond, and rebuild. It's not about the glove you're wearing. It's about practicing that swing every time. It's the swing, repentance, response, rebuild. Repentance, respond, rebuild. God wants us to be blessed so that we might be a blessing in our community. I don't know about you, but I think, actually, I know, the valley of dry bones is done. The valley of dry bones is done. Its days are numbered. God's bringing structure. God's filling us with substance. And he's going to put his breath in it. And suddenly, a mighty army will stand. Standing for Jesus. Our God is a faithful God. He's been faithful for 80 years in three weeks' time. And he will be faithful as long as it takes for the bride to make herself ready so that he can come and take her home. You've just heard another great message from Christian Family Center. Thank you so much for listening in. If you have any questions about today's message or Christian Family Centre, feel free to email us at info at whitsundayacc.com.au or call us on 07 4786 5555. See you next week.